also want to welcome you this morning to First Methodist Mansfield. If you have not met, my name is David and I serve as a senior pastor here. And if you are a guest, thanks for being here and thanks for allowing me the chance to share with you. If you have your Bible with you today, I want to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. If you did not bring a Bible with you, there's a blue Bible in the seat pocket in front of you. I'd encourage you to grab that. And in that Bible, you will find Acts chapter 1 on page 1690. Uh, we are in the third week of a series uh, called Family Meeting, and we've started each of the last two weeks by looking at this principle, that great families are those that establish values, uh, those that pursue shared vision, and help one another maintain healthy direction, which means that one of the things that great families do is they get together to remember what are our vision, uh, what, what are our values, what is our vision, and what is the direction what we are going together. And so what we're doing in the context of this series is what we hope all families do. If you want to be a great family, you come together to remember what are our values, what is our vision, and where, what direction is God calling us to go. That's what we're doing over the course uh, of this six weeks with our entire church family, all the communities uh, that call uh, this church home. Uh, we're looking at our vision, our values, and the direction we feel like God is calling us to go. The last two weeks we've been in Acts chapter 2, and we're, we're going to begin today in Acts chapter 1, which may sound like we're working backwards, but I promise it'll make sense, okay? So in Acts chapter 1, I want you to look in particular at verse 8. So if you'll look for verse 8 real quick, here's what it says. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. This is after the resurrection, uh, before he ascends to the Father. He says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Remember, if you were here week one, that was the beginning of chapter two. The gift of the Holy Spirit to the disciples. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you're here and you have your own Bible... Grab a pen and underline Acts 1, verse 8. And here's why. Acts 1, verse 8 outlines the trajectory of the entire book of Acts. So again, the last two weeks we've been in chapter 2, where Peter in Jerusalem was a witness for Jesus. And because of his witness for Jesus, the witness of his death and his resurrection, thousands came to faith in Jesus. That was in Jerusalem. And between that point and where we're going to jump back into the story today, the gospel begins to move, and it moves beyond Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and moves to the ends of the earth. So let me show you first. This is a bit of a history lesson, and I promise it won't hurt too much, okay? So just, just follow with me for just a second. I want to show you first where the gospel goes by the end of the book of Acts, so in just a minute, we're going to look at Acts 15, but by Acts 28, this is where the gospel goes. So this is the Mediterranean Sea, this is the top of Africa here. This right here is Israel, okay? Uh, this is uh, the, the strip of land that connects the African continent uh, to the European continent. That's what makes this land so valuable. This is the home uh, of Israel. And way over here, I know you can't read this city title, but you can tell what the boot is here. Here's Rome, okay? And by Acts 28, the Apostle Paul is going to be in Rome. Now, as the crow flies, so they say... This is about 1,400 miles between Jerusalem and Rome. Probably a pretty long flight. 
a little bit longer if you're walking and taking boats, okay? First century travel, all right? But here's what I want you to see. By the end of Acts, this message is going to reach what those in Jerusalem would certainly have considered to be the end of the earth. It's gone all the way to the capital city of the Roman Empire by the very end of the book of Acts. Now, we're going to go back a little bit because, again, I told you we're going to jump in at Acts 15. I want to show you where it has gone, where this message has gone by the time we dive back into Acts chapter 15. So, you can't see Jerusalem on this map. It's down here. But the message has traveled north. Judea was the area just north of Jerusalem. Samaria was just north of Judea. Eventually, the gospel came to Antioch. And Antioch was an important church in part because all of the missionary journeys of Paul started in Antioch. It was kind of a home base for him. This is Paul's first missionary journey. He gets on a boat, goes over here to Cyprus, and it goes and works here in the area that is now southern Greece. So by Acts 15, the message has left the Jewish homeland. It has gone to Damascus, to Antioch. Now it's here in the region, again, that is modern-day Greece. It has spread. It has grown. More people have come to faith in Jesus, which you would assume is a great thing, right? It's a wonderful thing. It's what Jesus had told the disciples to do. Be my witnesses. And they're doing it. Great things are happening, and as a result of these great things, the church faces its most significant challenge. Now, in our church, here's what we call these things. We call these things unintended consequences, meaning there are things that happen in your life that on the surface, when they first happen, you think, this is great, This is wonderful. This is exactly what I wanted to have happen. Everything is good. This is just awesome until you realize that there are implications of the new awesomeness, right? There, There are things that change. There's a way you have to adjust. There's challenges that come because of the expansion. And this is what's happening in Acts chapter 15. This message is moving all throughout, all throughout the world. And yet, because it is moving, it is also creating some challenges for the church. And here's what the challenge was. I have to explain it to you because it wouldn't make sense to you according to how we think today. But what you may know, some of you may not know, Jesus lived his entire life as a Jew. The original disciples of Jesus were all Jews. Jesus preached uh, the primary audience of his message with with very few exceptions were the Jewish people. When Peter gets up in Jerusalem and he preaches that message in Acts chapter 2, what we saw last week is that 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus and we would appropriately expect that all of those on that day would have been Jews. But as this message begins to spread beyond Israel through the Apostle Paul and some other leaders, it not only continues to engage with the Jewish community, because there were Jewish communities uh, throughout the Roman Empire, even in Rome when Paul gets there, but Paul also begins to interact with and share the gospel with a different community, a community that was 
really different from the Jewish community. Now, those in this community didn't see themselves as really, really different. It was the Jews that saw them as really different. They, they saw them as so different, they even had a name for them, because that's what we do. Nobody laughed at that. That's interesting. Okay, that's what we do. So, we, we name them. We, we, we categorize them. And the name that the Jewish people had for these people were the Gentiles. The Gentiles were those who were not Jewish, okay? So there's like two checkboxes. You're Jew or you're not Jewish, which means that you are a Gentile. If a Gentile were to come to Jerusalem, there were certain places in that city that a Gentile could not go because they were seen as unholy, unclean, and unwelcome in God's holy city. So as Paul and others begin to share the gospel with those who were not a part of us, but rather a part of them, there are some people who have some issues with this. So look what happens. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 15 now. We'll see some of these unintended consequences being dealt with. So Acts 15 verse 1 says this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. So from way down here, uh, they are coming all the way north to Antioch. And they were teaching the believers in Antioch. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I'm just going to assume that everybody knows what this means, okay? But if you don't, just understand this was a new clause that would have given some people pause, okay? Like, I don't know about this whole salvation thing. So, verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So, Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So essentially what's going on is there are people in the church who are saying, well, maybe this has gotten a little out of hand. Maybe this has spread a little bit too far. And what they're saying is to those people who are a part of them, if you really want some of this salvation that, that this this Messiah has come to bring to us, you first have to become a part of us. You have to live like we do. You have to be a part of what, what, what we are and live as we live if you really want to be a part of this new family of faith. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, that's not what Jesus has come to do. So Paul and Barnabas, they're appointed. They come south. They, uh, the church sent them on their way. They traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. They come all the way south and as they go, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very, very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So Paul and Barnabas come south, and most people are pretty excited about what's happening. They're excited about how there are people who are claiming faith in Jesus, but there's this dispute. What exactly is required of those who place their faith in Jesus and want to experience the salvation that we have received and that we have experienced? And so look at verse 6. Acts 15 verse 6 says this, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. It is the first ever church committee meeting. Acts 15 verse 6. 
Now, let me pause and ask you this question. Have you ever in your life made a decision that only in hindsight did you recognize how critical that decision was? Maybe when you were uh, in your youth and you had some friends who were trying to encourage you to do something that you knew you shouldn't do. And because you just had this voice of guilt in your head, you decided to say no. And whatever it is that those friends were going to do that they were not supposed to do, they ended up getting caught. And in hindsight, you went, whoa, that could have been me. I'm so glad that wasn't me. Students, did you listen to that story? That's very important, okay? Okay. Because, Because there's some other people out here who they did that thing, and they were the ones who got caught. And in hindsight, you thought, oh, I wish I would have made a different decision. You realize the magnitude of the decision only after you had made it. Or maybe some of you have made a decision in your life at some point in your life, and you thought it was a pretty important decision. And yet it's only in hindsight that you recognize, wow, that decision has made all the difference in my life. I mean, when I got married, I got to tell you, I knew it was a pretty important thing. I mean, I knew it was a pretty big deal. Costs a lot of money. Everybody's getting dressed up. They're traveling. You know, it's a big deal. But boy, I got to tell you, I know in hindsight how much my life changed because of that decision. I mean, I got friends that remind me all the time, man, dude, you are lucky, man. I can't believe it. Yeah, there's those decisions that we make, and it's only after the fact that we realize Wow, everything changed because of this decision. Here's here's what I want you to hear. Acts 15 verse 6 is a moment in the early church when everything hangs in the balance. Everything that Jesus came to do and the very essence of the message that Jesus came to bring in Acts 15 verse 6 that hung in the balance. And in this critical, critical decision that the apostles and the elders had to make. So look what happens next. Two people, two leaders stand up and speak on behalf of these Gentile converts. The first is the apostle Peter. Peter got up and addressed them. This is verse 7. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the hearts, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He, God, did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So Peter is essentially saying this. We have received the gift of the Holy Spirit and we can't even really explain to others what that means, what that's like, what it is to to live in this new way of life. But we can see it. We can see it in the gift as it's given to others. And what we see in them is that God has given to them the same thing that God has given to us. In other words, Peter's saying God's already made this decision for us. He has shown us. 
He has shown us his will in the way in which his spirit is acting in the world. The second person who gets up is the uh, 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 James, an early leader uh, in the church in Jerusalem. James was the brother of Jesus. Look at verse 19. This is what James says. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Acts 15, verse 6, everything hung in the balance. And because these leaders got it right, the world changed. Human history changed forever because they got it right. I mean, you may not have thought about this, but we're here today because of the decision that they made. Acts 15, verse 6. We're all Gentiles. And what they came to understand is that this message isn't just for us, but it's for all. Now, history lesson over. What does that mean for us today? What does that mean for you and I as we think about family? And what does it mean to be a great family who has values and vision and is pursuing a particular, a particular direction. When you hear that word family, I bet there's some images that come to your mind. I bet there's some memories that come to your mind. Some of them are great and wonderful memories. Some of them may be hard and difficult memories, but you, you probably have something that comes to mind. Maybe you remember going to grandparents' house at Christmas or that holiday dinner, or, or you, you think about whatever that tradition might be in your family. I think about being on the road in grandma and granddad's RV, you know, just driving all over the country because they drug us all over the country as kids. And it was great. We got to see all these, all these different places. We were in the car all day long and no one drove but granddad. I don't know how he did that, but that's, that was just kind of the, one of the rules. Uh, but, but let me show you an image that I think we can all relate to when it comes to family. Uh, this is uh, an image of something that you probably have in your home. Uh, this is a table. Uh, and many of you have a table like this one where most of the time during the year it's a certain size. But when you're having one of those big dinners, that table is able to grow. You pull the leaves out of the closet, you pull the table out, and you make it a little bit bigger because you have some more people coming for company, more people coming to celebrate the dinner. And some of you over the course of your life, you've seen this table continue to grow and grow and grow. And that's, that's one of the blessings, the, the things that you give God thanks for is that there's more seats that you have to set in the table. Maybe for some of you, I mean, the, the Thanksgiving dinner or the Christmas dinner or whatever the tradition may be, I mean, it's kind of gotten out of hand. Like, you got people stuck in every single corner, and it's a little bit of an inconvenience. I mean, if you're sitting in the middle and you need to go to the bathroom, you're just kind of stuck because everybody wants to just keep eating turkey and they won't get up. But, but it's an inconvenience that you bear because you know how important it is for everyone to have a seat at the table. And it's not a coincidence. It is not a coincidence that at the center of our life together is a table. This table, it's always here. And this table is at the center of all of our services. The, the entire church comes together around this table. And it's from this table, whenever we celebrate Holy Communion, the remembrance of the Last Supper of Jesus, it's from this table that the bread is broken 
and the cup is offered and, and consecrated. It's from this one table that, that this meal is prepared and set and blessed and distributed to all. And if you've been here on one of those weekends when we celebrate communion, you've heard myself or one of our pastors say, this is not our table. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. I don't know who paid for it. But once it was set in this place, it was consecrated to God. It's God's table. And from this table, the gift is offered, and the gift is offered to all because it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And in Acts 15, verse 6, as these apostles and elders gather together to ask themselves to wrestle with the implications of the growth of the church, these are the two questions that they were asking. Whose table is this? And who is welcome at the table? I mean, whose table really is this? Who does this whole thing belong to? And according to who it belongs to, who, who is really welcome at this new table? One of the ministries in our church that we are doing our very best to keep up with is our new special needs ministry. It's, it's one of those ministries that, again, we're just, we're just trying to capture and to keep up with what is happening in, in the life of this ministry, in the families that are being connected, in the way in which we see God moving in this. Uh, this, this ministry is growing, I would say, for a couple of reasons. One of which is that we have a leader that can talk people into doing anything. I mean, this is, this is the kind of person who's dangerous to hang out with, I'll just tell you. Her name is Amanda, okay? So if you see her coming, I'm just warning you. Because Amanda is, she has a passion and an energy and enthusiasm that is dynamic and you can't walk away from her you cannot walk away from her without experiencing some of what she has and she wants to share with you and so you if you spend time with Amanda you will find yourself doing things that you did not want to do or never thought you would do and later you'll go, why did I do that? I don't even know. I mean, she has this, she has this skill. She's just such a, a, a magnetic person. But the second reason why is because God's blessing it. God's blessing it. God's doing something in it. And again, so when we see God doing something in a ministry like that, we're just trying to keep up. We're just trying to keep up with what God is doing. Here's a, here's a note that a parent shared with Amanda, and Amanda shared with me about the impact of this ministry in the life of their family. Uh, she writes, I am so thankful that this church reached out to special needs kids and families at Ben Barber High School through Stepping Stones. Our daughter enjoyed coming so much that when you invited parents to come one week for Thanksgiving dinner, we were delighted to come. I asked about a special needs Bible study because I knew she didn't fit into a youth group anymore. You told me that there wasn't one yet, but that you realized there was a real need. Which for Amanda means that in about five minutes we're going to have this because we didn't have it before. And so, uh, continuing reading, when you called and told me that one had been started, I brought our daughter. And she has loved coming. Our entire family started attending worship, and after attending for a while, we decided to attend Starting Point to find out more about the church and to join this church family. Because of her involvement, our daughter has since come to understand God's grace for herself 
and has since made the decision and has been baptized. I am so thankful for the love that you have shown to these kids and young adults who are different. Now, you love that story, don't you? I mean, I know you do. I know you hear that and you think, ah, that, I am proud of my church. I am so happy to hear that there are people who are making room at the table for those who may have struggled to find their place. And you love hearing that, right? I mean, you, that, that's one of those heartwarming things. I'm so, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that someone is making room, creating a space so that someone can find their place at the table. But one of the things that Acts 15 reminds us is that there is an ongoing temptation in the church. And the ongoing temptation is to see this not as God's table, but to see it as our table. And it's subtle. It's, it's subtle in the way that it happens sometimes. Sometimes the way it happens is because you invest in what I talked about last week. You invest in small groups. You invest in one another. You become invested in one another's lives. You pour into those relationships, and that's a good thing. We spent a whole week on it last week. But then because you are so invested in those relationships, you're so invested in nurturing those relationships that you don't have the time and the energy for the relationships you may have with those who have not yet found their place at the table. You spend so much time at church, you don't spend any time with your neighbor. You spend your time with people, again, this is one of the subtle ways, you spend time with people who are like you, people who talk like you, people who live like you do. People who you know you will have a connection with. People who don't make you feel too uncomfortable. People who are in your group. They're, they're a part of my people. And a church ceases to be a church when it forgets that there are places that have been set for those who have not yet come to the table. It's not a church anymore. It's not a church. And many of those churches who have experienced that, they don't even know what's happened. But they're not a church anymore. Because you can't be a church if you don't know whose table sits at the center of your life together. Here's, and here's why. Because forgetting who is welcome always goes hand in hand with forgetting the one to whom the table belongs. Forgetting who is welcome always goes hand in hand with forgetting the one to whom the table belongs. And there are churches where I believe that God, in his boldness, has said, because you do not welcome them, you do not welcome me. You can have the table. I'm gone. 
Because a church, a body of faith, the, the critical question that the leaders of the early church got right is that this table is God's. And God has said this table is not just for us. This, this table is for all. In John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem uh, to the Sea of Galilee area. He travels through Samaria. You heard that earlier in Acts 1 verse 8. You don't have to know everything about Samaria. Here's all you need to know. In Samaria were Gentiles. And as he's traveling in the middle of a hot day, he stops at a well. And there at that well is a woman. A woman who was a Samaritan, which meant that she was a Gentile. This was someone with whom Jews did not interact with. And then Jesus does something totally revolutionary. He talks to her. Look look at what happens in John chapter 4. This is how the Samaritan woman responds to Jesus. Hey, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John offers for us this little note, just in case we don't know what's going on. He says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In other words, what Jesus is doing here, it's not cool. You don't do that, man. A Jewish man does not talk to a Gentile woman. A Gentile walks down the street, a good Jew walks to the other side of the street in order to prevent themselves from becoming unclean. But there, Jesus talks to her, and she is shocked that he would be so bold as to speak to her. I want you to hear this in relationship to Acts 15 and this critical question, whose table is this and to whom, uh, to who belongs at this table? This table is even for those who assume that there isn't room for them at the table. It's even for, for people like this woman who have no idea. Why is Jesus even talking to me? Now here's what I want to ask you today. Do you know someone like that? Do you know someone who, who would say, I'm not welcome there? Would, do you know someone in your life who would not walk through those doors because they were afraid of what someone else might think? what people might say, whether or not they would be welcome. Whether or not they would look the right way or say the right things or be able to follow along in the right order. Do you know someone like that? Who would assume this this doesn't even have anything to do with me. I'm not welcome there. Or is there someone who you would assume is not welcome there? Is there someone who you would easily pass by and just not think twice about? Or is that person you? When I read the scriptures, what I find, and I'm sure what you have found 
in your own reading is that there are times where we find ourselves asking so many questions of the scriptures. But every once in a while, there's a moment where I feel like the scripture is asking something of us. And this is the question that I think Acts 15 asks of us. The question is, is there room? And if there is a name that came to your mind as you thought about who may feel unwelcomed, who may assume that Jesus has nothing to do with them, who may feel like they've messed their life up so much they just wouldn't fit in, or maybe even if it's you, I want to invite you to just put that name in that blank. Because this is the question that Acts 15 asks of us. Is there room? Is there room at God's table? Is there room? To be a church. To be a church is to recognize that this table, this table is God's table. And that means that everyone, everyone is welcome Everyone is welcome here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace that has prepared a place for us. And we come to this table, Lord, not on our own merit, for we know that we do not have it. We come because you have invited us And you have by your grace set a place and out of love, Lord, you have invited us to take a seat. Lord, we pray for your prodigal sons and daughters who find themselves today in a distant land wondering if their father will welcome them home. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, that you would forgive us for passing by, for assuming that there are those who do not belong, or Lord, for giving up on those who find themselves wandering today. Give us the heart that is as your heart is, a heart that longs to reach out to move beyond, to build relationships, to invite sons and daughters to the table that belongs to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before we leave today, I want to offer you um, words of benediction, but I also want to offer you a word uh, that I hope is is a challenge for you that is based on what we talked about, but it's, a, it's another implication of this message that we have just shared and, and what I believe God is teaching us in this early, early challenge that the, uh, that the church faced uh, in its infancy. Uh, we live in a divisive world. I hope that doesn't come as a shock to you. If so, good job. Don't buy a TV. It's, seriously, it's, it's just mess your life up. We live in a divisive world. Um, in August, we did a series called Be a Builder. And I just want to remind you, church, that that emphasis wasn't just for a month. It was a reminder of who we are as people 
of God. As people of God who live in a world that seems to be filled with so many who are willing and ready to tear down, we are called to be builders of God's better world. And so what I want to challenge you again to do, and I'll probably do it again over these next few months, is I want to challenge you to resist the temptation to be people of fear. Don't give in to it. Instead, be people of faith. And one of the things that I think people of faith do when they find themselves in the midst of the vision and chaos is people of faith listen. So that's what I want to encourage you to do this week. There's going to be somebody that you meet this week who may be driven right now by a spirit of fear in their life. And what I want to challenge you to do is just to listen to them and encourage them and help them see that fear, fear doesn't lead to peace. Faith does. And so as people of faith, I want to invite you to go out into a world that is filled with chaos and hurt and anger and violence. And I want to encourage you to go and be peacemakers who recognize that the grace that you have received is a grace that God has given for all. So go in Jesus' name and go in peace. Amen.